I can invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 15. Over the next few weeks, I plan to work through some thematic elements in the book of Proverbs and do my best to encourage you to walk as someone who is wise. And so let me just get a running start in the idea of, of Old Testament wisdom, especially the book of Proverbs, that we might have a really clear perspective of what God is actually trying to do with the book of Proverbs. Uh, often they read like Christian fortune cookies. And there's so much more and better uh, than any fortune cookie. But as we look at the uh, book of Proverbs, what we should recognize is that Solomon particularly is trying to write out how a godly person should walk in everyday life so that they fulfill the law of God. And he's thinking of the Mosaic Law in general, and I think that's where some of the promissory notes come in, where you see, like, long life is the promise of someone who is righteous, because he's borrowing that from out of God's promises in the law. That is, prosperity in the land and long life were guaranteed promises in the law. And then there are stipulations and exceptions, of course, with how God promised that to Israel. But then Solomon is framing these things out as, this is what it looks like to be wise. A wise person does this. He's not thinking of wisdom as an isolated expression. He's thinking of this as the right application of understanding God's word. That is, as I know how to walk in contentment, not trying to steal my neighbor's land or cows or wife, it will lead me to treat his possessions and my possessions in a certain way. And the book of Proverbs says what that looks like. So then when we deal with like the issue of, of our words or our mouth, this is really an expression, and maybe if we think of summary expressions, when Jesus says the whole law is fulfilled in these two commands, loving God with all of your being and loving your neighbor, then what we would see in the book of Proverbs as all of these uh, framings of how we speak and the power of our words and how we should respond when we're hurt. All of these expressions about our communication are really practical applications of loving God and loving our neighbor with our words. And just to remind you of what the New Testament clearly teaches, and as you think about the significance of your words, if I were just to suggest to you that our words reveal our true inner thinking, our true heart, our mind, our spirituality. I'm doing nothing more than quoting Jesus with a lot more words than he said it. He said it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you say something ugly and you respond by it like, oh, I didn't mean to say that, you're a liar. Which you, which you, which I may should say, you're maybe not a liar in that moment, you're just misunderstanding something. That is, you didn't mean to be heard but you actually do mean it, right? Like, I didn't mean for you to know that's what I feel about you. It might be an honest way to apologize for saying something you shouldn't say. And, and he, that is Jesus, is saying that when we speak, we expose our inner person. 
Not only would Scripture say that, Scripture would remind us, in James especially, in this incredibly powerful passage that although our tongue is small, it does mighty things. It's like a spark. A whole forest fire can be set ablaze with just a tiny little ember. And our tongue and our words are like that. They may seem insignificant. He says that spark, though, is like a little sample of hell. And fires of hell rage because of words that are unbridled. Think about that. That's a terrifying thing. That if you don't put caution around your mouth, you are an agent of hell with the words you speak. That's terrifying. Just think about the power of words. Jesus Christ is described as God's word. In the beginning was the, and the word was God. God uses this because Jesus Christ reveals and expresses and explains who God is. It's not surprising that the whole world was framed then by the word of God. That is, he said, let there be light, and there was light. You don't have to wonder if your words are powerful. God preaches to us. Your words are powerful. It is with the word of God someone is saved. Right? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. God speaks the world into existence. He brings faith through the word. Or as James would say, the implanted word which is able to save. And your words are incredibly powerful too. They can be an agent of hell or an agent of heaven. So if our words are so powerful, if our words express our true inner being, Scripture then calls us to a better way in the New Testament. He actually calls us to a grace-filled speech. So that in Ephesians, he would say in, in chapter 4, don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up, that it might minister grace to those who hear you. Or in Colossians, he would say that our speech is to be seasoned with grace. And the difference between a steak that has no seasoning and a steak that is perfectly seasoned is significant in its appreciation. So to a really good word, carefully crafted to give grace, is a delight to the hearer. And sometimes truth comes like a raw, poorly cooked, unseasoned steak. The issue is not the content, it's its delivery. And so the, the Christian is called to be someone who speaks to give grace to all who hear. So all of that being the case, Proverbs then should be one of those places where we go to say, what does that actually look like? Okay, so I have this powerful tool. And like any power tool in the garage, it should be handled with care. Right? You don't want your three-year-old starting up your circular saw and trying to do a project. Dangerous things can happen when that circular saw gets moving in a three-year-old's hands. Just like that, we want to make sure we know how to appropriately use this power tool God's given us that can bring life and death, that can be a minister of heaven or hell, the very type of tool which God frames and holds in existence the very world in which we live. I want to use this power tool in a way that pleases God, don't you? So what does it look like to please God? If you're with me in Proverbs chapter 15, all of that, 
was to remind you how important and strong these texts are in equipping us to actually live in such a way that God is pleased. So maybe I could say there, here are four uses of the tongue. And in some ways, misuses, there's almost always a contrary thought here. Verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the good, excuse me, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness or crookedness in it breaks the spirit. Here to look down in verse 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of fools. Verse, verse 3 may not seem to deal with the tongue, but in that context, it seems like it's kind of like an Oreo cookie. It's made of different stuff, but it's still a part of the cookie. And so I think probably in verse 3, we should understand that to be helping us think through our words in light of the fact that God knows everything and evaluates everything and comes down with a judgment about everything. So let's start with verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. All right, so, so when we look at a verse like that, he's making a statement. And this is where Proverbs calls upon us to be good thinkers. He is not merely making a statement like grass is green, where it has no implications on how we're to live. The point of this proverb is that not only does a soft answer turns away wrath, but you should be someone who turns away wrath. Right? He's not just saying, this is a truism. He's saying, you should be someone who turns wrath away, who stops the anger, who deflates the, the anger and the fighting and the contention in the room. Or maybe you could say it this way. Wise people pursue peace. They don't pursue conflict. They don't try to agitate people. In fact, they try to calm them and bring about a peaceful resolution. A soft answer turns away wrath. There's commendation, but also instruction. Not only should be people who try to turn others away from their anger, here's how you do it. It's a, a soft or a gentle answer. In other words, in the face of anger, in the face of, of someone who's upset, what do we do? We respond in such a way that we help the person who is angry and out of control gather their control, soften their spirit, and move forward with wisdom so that we can gain peace. Our goal when we speak to others then is that we be people who produce peace and do not produce conflict. We use our words to bring people to a place of control in their words so that we can work with them and seek a mutually beneficial solution. Just listen to these Proverbs that challenge us not to be people who stir up conflict. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 16, a worthless man plots evil in his speech is like scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and whispers separate close friends. We use our tongue to speak of others, to hurt others, to plot evil, and we are the fool of Proverbs. And even this thought, an evil doer listens to wicked lips. 
Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates dear friends. A soft answer isn't merely just speaking with quiet words. There have been times where I've been injured by words that are spoken with quiet calm, but they're brutal in their content. This is not merely saying when you and someone you care about are in conflict and the volume is rising and the speech rhythms are increasing, that therefore you should slow down and be quiet. It's not only suggesting that, but I would call upon you to recognize he's saying content. That is, we don't bring lies. We don't, again, if you're thinking maybe in the context of a home, We don't exaggerate to make a point. Lies stir up conflict. Wicked and worthless people do these things. Instead, love covers an offense. It seeks to minimize the injury caused by a sin. In fact, Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless are like piercing swords. Sometimes when you get into conflict and you're a little bit out of control and you're just speaking freely and not limiting and not filtering and not planning what you should say, the Bible describes your words like sword thrusts. And for the spouse, for the child, for the coworker, for the church member who's in conversation with you, that's brutal. Doing damage. A wise person responds to conflict with wise gentleness. In a deliberate attempt to bring the situation under the control of their mind and the speaker's response, a harsh word stirs up anger. If this is the case, then a wise person never speaks like that. Now, I think we ought ought to recognize that, for instance, Jesus calling a Pharisee a whited sepulcher or children of their father, the devil, aren't categorically harsh. We're talking about harsh words here. We're talking about the inflammatory words that are meant to injure, not bring light. We're talking about the type of blunt use of words that might accomplish something but not accomplish righteousness. So so the difference, perhaps, like if you think of a parent trying to correct a child who's hard-hearted, you can crush a kid with your words. You can subdue them with your parental power. Those things are harsh measures. Instead, like a surgeon, the goal of your words should be to excise the rebellion without crushing the spirit. Okay, that that might leave a cut. I mean, just imagine someone who's very simple-minded, goes into surgery to get a tumor removed, and he asks the doctor, are you going to cut me? What does the doctor say? We have to to remove the tumor. But it's not going to look like he had a fight with a lawnmower. Right? It's going to be a narrow, minor incision that's necessary to remove the tumor. It's not going to be a butcher shop. Parents and friends, spouses, 
Sometimes verbally, our spouse, our child, our coworker goes through a fight with a lawnmower when they talk to us. And we wonder why they never want to help us see our errors. We wonder why when we get a little bit riled, they're not willing to talk. It might be because rather than being soft and gentle and reasoned, we're harsh. And they either have the stirring up to anger or they just get beat down by verbal clubbing. A wise person uses words to produce peace. And I would just suggest as you think through patterns of conflict, one of the ways you do this is by being solution-oriented. You're not trying to make a case that your child's a dummy. You're trying to actually produce wisdom in them. And so moving, moving that child to, to wisdom, you don't always have to prove the case that they were dumb when they drove your car recklessly or that they were dumb when they lied to you about eating the cookies. When you see chocolate on their fingers and the cookies are gone and there's no one in the house but, house but them, you don't need to rail on them. You need to help them see what they did wrong and help them move towards wisdom. That's what the wise person does. Not only that, the wise person shows that God's truth is attractive. The wise person shows that God's truth is, is, is attractive. Look at verse 2 with me. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Now, there is a lot being said there that I think as we unpack that verse, we shouldn't just think of it as, as merely saying, wise people speak wisdom and foolish people speak folly. It says much more than that, but it at least says that. I, I think the point in the second line, the mouths of fools pour out folly, is telling us something about where folly comes from. When a fool opens his mouth and folly comes out, why does it come out? Because that's all he's got to give. You know, it's like when I empty my wallet and nothing comes out, that's because what, that's what's there. And so when a fool speaks and opens his mouth, what comes out? Lunacy. Foolishness. But in the context of Proverbs, folly is not just like you're dumb. Folly is a rejection of God's way. When you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll see things like walking and way and path repeated as anthems in the book of Proverbs so that there's a path to life. There's a path to destruction. There's a way that leads to life. There's a way that leads to destruction. And so when we have this man pouring out folly from his mouth, it's actually rejection of God's program and God's revelation. And he's really telling you what he thinks. It's opinion rooted in himself as the authority over what is said. And so when you ask him his opinion, he really just gives it. But when you ask a wise person an opinion, he gives you knowledge. But where does his knowledge come from? It comes from the Lord's Word. Again, leaning on the whole book here. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? that the knowledge of the Holy One is where wisdom begins then when we, we see a word like knowledge here, we, just, we, we shouldn't think of it as like brute fact. It's facts 
that God has revealed or are consistent with his revelation. If that's the case, when the wise man pours out knowledge and the fool utters folly, there's a content that either either is deriving itself from God's word or is deriving itself out of the opinions rooted in nothing authoritative. I can remember talking to my brother about a man he had reasoned with for quite a while, and the man had this kind of crazy view of salvation. The reason I think it was funny is because when my brother asked him where he got his religion from, here's literally what he said, me and my friends at the bar. So I oh, but this is fantastic. This guy's theology is three drunk guys. Like, that's his theological authority. Is it made sense to him while drinking? Well, that's nonsense. Like, who founds their eternal hope on three drunk men? But it is no more rational to believe in anything besides God's word. And the fool, that's all he has is his own rationale. Sober or drunk, it's not a good place to stand. But when you tap into the wellspring of his life, all that comes out of the faucet of his mouth is folly. Growing up in the country and having our own well, our shower smelled like sulfur. Because the water smelled like sulfur. And the well had sulfur in it. And so it smelled like rotten eggs in our bathroom. Just life. The fool's mouth spews out folly every time it's opened. Likewise, the wise person doesn't just speak knowledge. Look what it says. It says the tongue of the wise commends. It means adorns it, makes it beautiful, makes it attractive. You know, there are times where we can speak the truth in such a way we make it repulsive. I fear sometimes, like when we think of preaching and you think of the hellfire and brimstone preacher, it's, it's as though he's telling the truth. Is the sinner in jeopardy of God's eternal punishment if he does not repent and believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. But the way that's framed and the way it's declared can often make our God look unloving and ugly and vengeful in the ugliest way of vengefulness. And there's a theological truth that undergirds God's judgment that can be pulled away. And so in the abstract, God looks like a horrifically, terrifyingly ugly God. And yet, no untruth is said. It's what's not said, what's not explained. I mean, even just to to flavor that statement about God's justice with saying, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way. God is a God of mercy. And to talk about judgment without appealing to God's mercy makes God's justice harsh. It makes our God, by failure to be sweet and appealing, look ungodly. The wise person is careful so that when he calls people to see who God is and how he manages his world, that we would see the beauty and the glory of our God. Is there anything about which God does that he's ashamed? 
No, so we know that the mind that thinks truly about God would not be embarrassed of God. We can sing the praises of God without fear that speaking of his justice would indict him as unloving. Is God fully loving? Is he perfectly just? And there's no conflict in those things. And neither one of those should be backed away from. Neither one of those is God apologetic for. It's not as though God is saying, yeah, I have to be just. Sorry. God's justice is glorious. God's truth is wonderful. So let me like, make a connection here with, I think, where rubber hits the road kind of more personally. Imagine you're with a coworker who's 24 who meets a really beautiful girl. And this guy is talking about her, and it's pretty clear that before too long, he is going to take his choices to sinful expressions, whether he's going to sleep with her or move in with her. And so as he's talking, he knows you're a Christian. He's like, like it's okay if I move in with her. I love her, right? And all of a sudden, you have a, a tension. Are you going to tell him the truth? Because when you say no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't engage in any sexual activity of any sort until you're married. He's going to look at you in various ways and think various things about you. And you might feel apologetic about the truth. So a wise man, a wise woman, considers how to articulate the truth in such a way that this person is called to see it is beautiful. It is good. It is better. I mean, even the simple fact that the marriages that are most satisfying, longest lasting, neither engage in premarital sex nor cohabitation. That is an empirical fact proven by survey and study after study. So you could simply say, without any appeal to God's word, because it is true, it is true because this is the way God has made our world, but it is also something our world knows is true through observation. If you really care about that girl, you'll keep your hands off her until you're married. And if you really care about your future happiness, you'll do the same. Because here's what we know from fact, but I also know it's true because God says it's true. And you find ways to articulate and make the truth adorned as beautiful. I, I really don't think about this too much, but most of you women wear makeup. You don't, I gotta be careful here, I'm gonna get in big trouble. <laughs> you don't wear makeup because you're not pretty. You wear makeup to accentuate and make yourself even more pretty. And I think the truth without makeup sometimes isn't appreciated, isn't seen, isn't appreciated. It isn't viewed as appealing. A wise person finds ways to accentuate, to draw out the beauty, to show the color of God's majesty in his words. And so that doesn't happen without thought. I have the joy of watching my teenage girls grow up and learn to put on makeup. It's not easy. I mean, to take and accentuate and draw out one's beauty is something you have to learn how to do. Who knew? I mean, it's like, 
Believe it or not, I know this is going to be a stretch for some of you. There's no makeup up here. I don't know how to do this thing. But I would think it is much simpler to make a girl, her beauty, jump out at people who see her. That would be much easier than making God's wisdom beautiful. And if it's, if it's a difficult thing to make a woman who is pretty beautiful, how much more to help people see the beauty of God's word should we spend time and work and diligence thinking how to, how to make it attractive? That's why that's a characteristic of a wise person. A wise person considers and thinks. Not only do they know God's wisdom, they consider how to frame it. They consider about what makes it pretty and glorious. I mean, why is God's judgment good? Why is that something that anchors your soul? Should you worship God for his justice? Is it something that finds or, or gives you comfort? I mean, if for no other reason, we've been going through 1 Peter, Jesus Christ finds hope in the justice of the Father. Right as he's suffering, he entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. So to the victim, to the innocent, God's justice is an anchor securing their behavior so that they don't take justice in their hands, so that they know there's a reckoning day coming when God will grant back to them all of the benefits that accrue to the one who suffers for the sake of Christ. And so the one suffering loves God's justice. Our world wants justice. How could God let evil happen? He is just. Evil may happen, but a day is coming when the scales of justice will be so balanced, no one can impugn God as unfair or unequitable or unkind. God's justice is glorious, and we should see that all of God's wisdom is beautiful. And the wise person studies God's wisdom and knows how to put makeup on it so the world and people around them want the wisdom of God and want to live it. Not only that, the wise person speaks in such a way because God is watching. Right? They seek to please God with their words. Look in verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Again, if we're in the context of words here, and I think we should be, what we recognize is that our words actually indict us as good or bad people. Jesus says the same thing. Good trees produce, and bad trees produce. So when you pluck a piece of fruit that's bad, you know the heart of that tree is bad. So when you come to a verse like this, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good, he is suggesting to us to consider that our words expose the core of our being as either being good or evil. This is significant then, because the wise person not only knows that their heart is exposed by their words, they, they take that application and work on it. I don't know, have you ever said anything unkind? Have you ever found yourself halfway through a sentence of gossip and then you realize it was gossip? Have you ever found yourself speaking or laughing or creating jokes that are off-color and displeasing to your Lord? 
that says something about your heart. Right, so when we, when we are gossipers, when we tear down other people's reputations, when we speak with angry words and hurt others, the wise person doesn't just say, oh, I shouldn't do that. In fact, the wise person doesn't often say, well, I didn't mean that. Now, sometimes you are misunderstood, setting that aside, or maybe you mispronounce a word. Setting those types of mistakes aside, when you say ugly things, you probably should be saying, what about your heart? I have an ugly heart. Or, or perhaps when you lie, you should recognize that you're ashamed of your behavior and you're trying to avoid your consequences rather than being someone who's honest and lives with integrity and deals with the garbage that you've been doing. Right? That's, I mean, that's why we lie generally, is we're ashamed of who we are, or what we've done, or who we've been around. If this is the case, then the wise person doesn't just look at their words as clothing that has nothing much to do with their heart. Their words are, in fact, an expression of the root of their being, and they repent that way. They approach sanctification that way. They look at their, their words, and they go, oh, man, I'm a really ugly person who says ugly things. I need major transformation. I don't need just a little bit of discipline slapped on my words so I don't say that in front of those people. My heart is bad. What a gift. And think about it this way. How do you know what God is wanting you to change and fix in your life? I mean, so much of the time, it's, it can be easy to live an acceptable life that's not filled with garbage. And then all of a sudden, you realize through your words that you've really hurt someone. And they come to you and say, you've really hurt me. Don't brush that off. Don't be like, oh, I'm sorry you're hurt. Like a politician. I'm sorry that anyone was hurt by my words. Well, they were hurtful. Could you own them? You are a mean person. I, I remember a few years ago as a senator, I think, from New York, who cheated on his wife and then lied about it repeatedly. And he said something like, I'm sorry if my actions hurt her. I'm like, you punk. Like, of all the crazy nonsense, what a hateful, wicked thing to do. And then apologize if it hurt her. Like somehow she's oversensitive. Your words are not something you should back away from. You should recognize they are showing you what's below the surface. I can't help but think of the ugliness that's in the ocean with sharks because my kids were on a shark week binge about two weeks ago. And it's almost like our words are like that, that fin of that shark. They come up above the surface. It's hard to know what's below the surface. Everything can look calm and serene, and our words poke up and show us that we've got some ugly sharks swimming in our waters. So we repent. We don't go, oh, it's just a little fin. Man, there's an ugly shark you need to get rid of, you kill, you repent, or it'll destroy people who get in your waters, who swim near you. My daughter hates sharks. She did not like that illustration. Last, 
Look at verse 4 with me. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. I mentioned earlier the power of words. With words, God created the world. With words, he sustains it. Right by the word of his power, he sustains his whole universe. The Lord is watching everywhere. He knows every word we speak. And so the Christian, profoundly aware of God's eyes in every place, making an evaluation on our hearts, whether they're evil or good, the wise person is careful with his words. Verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. If you want to know if you're speaking with wisdom, ask yourself, what is the outcome of my words? Do I drive people towards Christ or away from him? Do I lead people towards the way of life, which is not merely like, oh, they're healthier. They'll live to 98 now instead of 78. That's not the point. We're talking about spiritual wholeness. We're talking about spiritual vitality. We're talking about joy rather than depression. We're talking about somebody who's encouraged and wants to go out and serve and work hard rather than the person who, after talking to you, has to have two weeks of recovery in an isolated chamber before their spirit is strong enough to face the world. Do your words crush people or strengthen them? Do your words criticize people or build them up? Do you look for signs of hope or signs of sin everywhere? Let me just read a few words to you from Proverbs. Gracious words are like a honeycomb in the wise person's mouth. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 11.11, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. I already read this, but I'll read it again. Proverbs 12.18, Speaking recklessly is like thrusts of a sword, but the words of the wise bring healing. Proverbs 13, 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So there is both direction, life, and direction away from death. Proverbs 14, 1 says, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Listen, if you are tearing down people with your words, you're a bad mom, dad, coworker. A wise person speaks with gentle words. They're gentle and meek because their Savior is gentle and meek. They work to express grace and hope. They look for signs of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and strengthen the conviction of the soul to pursue Christ. Every once in a while, when we go to the beach, I'll see a guy out there with a metal detector. Just looking for a ring or some ancient coin, hoping to find something. There are people who are like that with sin. And men, when they find it, their verbal alarms go off and they attack it and they tear people up. Jesus was so gracious to the sinners that it actually impugned his ministry. He's a friend of sinners. I can't imagine him using harsh words to shred sinners for being sinners. Can you? I also don't think Jesus was passive or lacked in integrity as though sin didn't matter either. Instead, I think with gentle grace, like this passage says, he was using his words to be a tree of life. You guys know the first time we see the idea of a tree of life? Go back to the Garden of Eden. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree that gives life. Then Adam and Eve went and ate the tree that would bring death rather than the tree that brings life. And now God says that his people, by speaking words of wisdom, can have in some reflective way that opportunity to be life-giving with their words. But that same power that gives life can break the spirit, can crush bones, and can discourage people. And just the blessing, it speaks the words of affirmation of the upright. A city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is torn down. How much more? your friends, your children. I would like to think I'm wise. God has given us some signposts. You know you're wise. Do you point people to Christ? When you walk away from others, are they more energized and stronger in their convictions to follow after Christ? Or are they like, man, I'm a worthless person? Do they feel discouraged? I have the joy and pain of being a Peewee football coach, which means I'm part team dad, part coach, part therapist. I mean, I'm amazed at the psychological roller coaster of a football game and 10 year olds. It is, it is astounding. They're just transparent and hyper reactive. So one of the best athletes on our team is the quarterback. And if he makes a mistake, and he's this tough kid, he likes to act tough, and he's kind of tough. The guy is psychologically fragile. I mean, he will cry if he throws an interception for sure. And he's a sweet kid, but it's like Aaron Rodgers throws interceptions. I hope he throws a lot this year. Guarantee you, Jordan Love, who's a Bakersfield guy, is going to throw some interceptions this year, at least if he actually gets on the field. Right? That, like, your best make mistakes. And so, my job on a regular basis with this young man is to point out that mistakes are something we get better when we lean into the cause of them and work on it, but they're not a cause for sitting down and crying. It's interesting that all of these heathen coaches, I mean, it's, the language out there is rough, at least when the kids aren't present. Make your ears bleed. All of these guys who are just, I mean, they're truckers, they're nice guys, but man, they're rough. They know how to encourage a 10-year-old. They know how to lift him up so he doesn't, get discouraged in his spirit so he can go out there and play hard and work hard and have fun doing it. Where is that spirit in you? Are you the type of person that when you see others who've made mistakes, they've thrown an interception in, in their life, and you can see like they're hanging low, like they're chin is down, they don't feel like working for the Lord, and they're discouraged. Are you the type of coach that's like, yeah, don't do that again. Why don't you sit down and think about that for a while? 
That is not what that kid needs. Are you sitting there thinking, hey, we all make mistakes. That's not something we want to do again. But we got to get out there and face it and work hard. Are you the type of person that sends the people around you back onto the field with hope, courage, and confidence that if they walk in grace, God will help them pursue Christ? Are you the type of person that when you speak to others, you suck the hope out of their soul and you leave them broken in their spirit? A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but crooked words break the spirit. Do you use your words to bring peace? Do you use your words to make knowledge attractive? Do you use your words knowing that with your words you don't only expose the goodness or evil in your heart, with those words you please your Savior or displease Him? Do you use your words to give life and point out how we all can follow Christ better and give us strength and joy in the doing? Or do you discourage us and bring tiredness to our spiritual muscles and despair to our hearts? Since I have been around a lot of you, a lot of times, there are many of you who are very gifted encouragers. Many of you are very strong in this gift. I hope you're that way at home. I hope you're that way in your workplace. I hope your neighbors, when they talk to you, they're like, man, that, I love talking to her. She's awesome. I just feel like we should get to know them more and find out what makes them tick because every time I talk to them, I feel like I should be a better mom. Don't you want your neighbors to talk about you like that? Rather than like, man, sucking on lemons. What's wrong with her? Do people get moved towards Christ, strength in life, joy in doing right? Do they thirst after wisdom from God after speaking to you? If they don't, rather than assuming you're wise, you might need to assume you're foolish and get into God's word to see how to be wise. If you're living as a wise person, keep growing. Don't relax because there's more here for you to know so you can be a better coach, a better encourager, a better friend, a better dad, a better neighbor who's stronger in wisdom and therefore better for all of us to be around. Let's pray that God gives us mouths that honor and please our Savior. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the confidence with which we can speak to the content of wisdom. We know it is wise to trust in Jesus Christ with our whole heart. We know that it is wise to do right, that it is actually not only good and pleasing to you, it is good and brings goodness to us. It is the best pathway for satisfaction. It is the best and most secure way for us to have joy. And yet it is a call to believe. Because at times, we think there are better ways. We think it is easier to make our ideas known and to express our opinions with harshness. Sometimes we feel as though it's better to hide by, behind lies. 
sometimes we forget that you hold us accountable for every little word. And so we speak carelessly or unkindly or with white lies or justifiable untruths. Father, I ask that you would strengthen our church to enjoy the use of our words to bring strength and hope and Christ-likeness to the people around us. I ask that you use our mouths to bring praise and glory and honor to the only one who deserves it like him, Jesus, our King. I ask that you would make us consistently worshipers of our Lord and King and people who bless men and strengthen them and call them to see the goodness with which they can live when they follow after Christ. Lord, help us to use our words, this powerful tool that you've given to us to bring glory to the Son and Christ-likeness to this world. In Jesus' name.